Coming up, a fantastic interview with former Conservative and UKIP MP Douglas Carswell about his latest book, Rebel. Um, a little word of explanation, we recorded this interview in a cafe. There is quite a bit of background noise, but once you kind of tune your ears, you get into it. And another little tip, this interview gets better and better, and by the end, it absolutely flies. So if you're interested in these subjects government uh, systems of rule and so on listen right through to the very end because it gets better and better hello and welcome to stuff that interests me with me dominic frisbee and today we're here to talk about this book rebel by douglas carswell or is it rebel we're about to find out and uh, douglas is sitting opposite me and at one minute past midnight this morning douglas no longer was an MP. He stood in five general elections. He's won four of them. uh, And the only general election he's lost was against Tony Blair. And it is also his birthday. So happy birthday, Douglas. Um, And I suppose we've got to start with why have you chosen to stand down as an MP? I felt a job done. I went into politics fundamentally to get us out of the European Union. I think that the was European the sole reason you went into politics? Not the sole reason, but the main reason. I think the EU is a racket. It is the uh, embodiment of um, so much that is wrong about the modern world. It's this attempt by a small elite to take power and decision-making so that they can make public policy without reference to the public. And getting Do you us think out they knew key. what they were doing? when they started the EU. Do you, oh, I mean, absolutely. they created this... Mon- oh, absolutely. you think... Absolutely, of course. I mean, if you read um, John Lachlan's book, um, um, uh, I think uh, it was uh, this... this, uh, this uh, I can't remember the exact name, but yeah. um, um, he, he, he looks at the idea of the European project and the founding fathers of the European project. It's a profoundly, not undemocratic, anti-democratic ideal. The, the whole purpose of the European project is to subvert this idea of, of democratic self-determination, to try and create a, a world in which the lives of hundreds of millions of Europeans are organised by grand design, by the expertise of an elite. Um, that, that is the very essence. Why did they do that? Because they knew better than the people or because they had some or power? To be fair to some of the founding fathers of the EU, I think the the consequences of of the fall of the the Habsburg Empire, what that unleashed in the 20s and the 30s, and where that ended up, um, the nationalism of the 1930s, where that ended up, I think it traumatised a a whole generation of of, of, um, Europeans um, to the point where they actually felt that they should do anything to to suppress um, democratic national self-determination. And the EU was their way of trying to trying to do that. Um, unfortunately, they, they they I think drew many of the the, the wrong conclusions. Actually, the the, the way to um, ensure that you have a liberal democratic order is not to suppress um, democratic self determination. Um, weirdly, the European Union is actually fueling the very forces of, of yeah. nationalism that it was supposed to It's one of those prevent. odd paradoxes. Yeah. And so you stood in your first election in 2000, was it? I actually first stood in 2001. 2001, sorry, beg your pardon. I, I stood uh, against Tony Blair, and my apologies for only managing to come second. <laughs> it was, um, it, it's the only time I've ever lost a, a public vote. Um, but um, it was a lot of fun, and I, I learned a lot from that campaign. I, I don't think I would have managed to go on to win the four contests I, I subsequently went on to win if I hadn't have learned some of the lessons of standing against Tony Blair. Which party did you stand for? I stood for the Conservatives. OK. Yeah. And so, job done. I mean, you must have felt... Well, describe how you felt the morning after that, that, that vote. Did you know we were going to win? Because I saw you... I remember watching you being interviewed on, on uh, the election programme and, and you kind of put the, the boot into Nigel Farage and you didn't look like a man who was just about to win this vote, referendum vote. This was like about 8.30 in the evening or 9.30 in the evening. I... I had some of our private data, and I was I was pretty pretty optimistic that we would do it, but um, it was going to be a close run thing. I, you know, before the referendum result, I, I had discussed with my wife and uh, many of my nearest and dearest, and I decided that I wasn't ever going to stand for, for Parliament again. Um, if we won the referendum, I was going to um, 
leave politics with a, a, a smile on my face. Yeah. If we lost the referendum, I would go away in a bit of a huff. It's a great joy to be able to stand down from Parliament knowing that we won the referendum. But, you know, um, all that Theresa May's decision to hold a snap election has done is bring forward by two years uh, uh, an announcement not to run again that I, I was already preparing to make. I, I want to ask you about Theresa May in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but my first question is, like, you know, I'm a classical liberal. I think you're basically a classical liberal. We need more classical liberals in Parliament. I think a lot of Tories are closet classical liberals. They sympathise with their zone of views. But there's only three who are outspokenly classical liberal. You, Steve Baker and um, Jacob Rees-Mogg. We need you. Why are you going? I'm not sure that the way politics and political parties are currently structured really allows much room for classical liberalism. In order to be a classical liberal in politics today I think you've got to do things that basically put you at odds with the rest of your party and let me explain why all political parties suffer from at their core the same myth and that is the big man or or, or sometimes it's a woman myth the idea that the single leader whether that leader is Tony Blair or Barack Obama or Theresa May or, or David Cameron somehow by voting for them all will be well. And all all political parties basically try to flog this this myth. Vote for this one individual and all will be well. But the world doesn't work like that. The world can't be organised and shaped by a single individual from on high. But because political parties are structured that way on the basis of this, 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 this ability of a single individual to shape the world, those of us who are classically liberal, who believe that actually the world is self-organising and that order is emergent, find ourselves basically constantly confronted by attempts by others within our parties to to try and design things by blueprint. And I I, I think if we really want classical liberalism to flower, we we need to recognise that that the current party system and the current way of doing politics um, has got to fundamentally and profoundly change. Yeah, I mean, the problem I see it is that no party is going to win a general election promising to do less. The, the very nature of, you know, vote for us, we're going to fix education, we're going to fix the NHS, we're going to make you all rich. No party's going to... I, I, with respect, I, I, I profoundly disagree with that. Um, I think the, the voters who are used to the idea of self-commissioning, they watch television, Netflix, they, they, they decide what they want, want to watch when they want to watch it. They want to order their groceries, they decide when their groceries arrive. Um, that they're used to, because of digital technology, of being able to shop around and get not only what they want when they want it, but that the idea that the, the best becomes ubiquitous. Um, this idea of having control is very much the, the, the popular zeitgeist. And, and yet politics today is all about elites saying, we will do stuff for you. And it's no longer plausible. I think there's a huge market in there, actually, for, for, for people in politics to say, vote for us and we'll allow you to have your own family healthcare plan, funded by taxation, but appropriate to your family's needs. Vote for us and we will allow you to have a personalised um, uh, curriculum for your child and we will allow you to commission uh, uh, their own education place at a school of your choice if you're not happy with what the state provides. I think there's a huge opportunity for that. But, you know, I, I, I look around politics today and I see busybodies wanting to do things to people and this is ultimately what's driving the tide of of anti-political sentiment. I I was reading yesterday that Tony Blair is talking, is thinking about uh, joining the Lib Dems in some way. Lucky them. And there's this, also this talk about the Progressive Alliance. It's one of the the, the problems that Tony Blair's looking at and you know, the, the problem with politics is it is essentially a two-party system. And, you know, Labour at the moment is broken, so it's almost a one-party it system. Is. It's a cartel where, by default, it's morphed into a monopoly. But how... I mean, UKIP managed it. They, they started another party. Admittedly, they're the only man they've mm. got in Parliament, or had in Parliament, is you. But, I mean, it's one of the problems, just that, that there's no no other party can join there, there is, it's well, not real comp- it pretends to be competition yeah. it feels like competition because yeah. they I argue mean, the, but there isn't actually real competition I mean my main reason for joining UKIP was I could see the referendum coming and I wanted to make sure that 
we didn't lose yeah. the referendum by having the worst kind of Eurosceptics leading the charge. Um, but I also thought that UKIP could break this, this cartel. Yeah. At one um, stage, it looked like it was going to become the Libertarian it, Party, it, and that it, never it, quite happened. It looked as if it really could break the cartel, because there was a time immediately after the Rochester by-election when I think people were looking at UKIP afresh, mm. and there was a real opportunity there. Sadly, we, we somewhat messed that up by uh, reverting to type and being angry and nativist, but, you know, bygones are, are, are bygones. I think Nigel Farage has a lot of sympathy with kind of classical liberalism. He hasn't gone down that route, but I think he has a lot of sympathy with those ideas. Why do you think he's gone down the route he has gone down? I have a hunch that... And any- don't put the boot into Nigel no, Farage. I, I have a hunch that anyone... Yeah. I, I, would, um, I have a hunch that anyone who's been in frontline national media spotlight for more than a a decade or so tends to lose a sense of self-awareness. I I think we we see this in in lots and lots of political leaders in all parties. Um, Actors as well. Being able to see yourself the way other people see you is a very rare quality in politics. I I think Nigel once had it. I'm not convinced he, he has it any longer. I think Margaret Thatcher once had it. She clearly lost that ability. Tony Blair once had it. He lost that ability. Being in the spotlight, I think eventually means that you lose the ability to reflect upon on how others see you. I, I think, I'm, I'm guessing, but I, I, I think Nigel, five, ten years ago, wouldn't have made some of the mistakes that I, I think he's made more recently. Yeah, I think with him, my own take on this, and you, you kind of put the boot into him quite heavily in your book. I, I, I think I do, actually. I, okay. I, well. I, I, I talk about what I think what effect I think he had I actually avoid making personal judgments uh, okay. about him I remember watching, going to watch a debate a Guardian debate at the Palladium on the EU very early on in the referendum it would have been maybe February and there was Nigel Farage, Nick Clegg um, Alan Johnson mm-hmm. and uh, Andrea Ledson it was supposed to be um, Lawson but he didn't turn up and Ledson mm-hmm. showed up instead and you know, it was a Guardian event and they introduced each of the politics. Farage got by far the biggest cheer as he walked on stage at a Guardian event. And then there were lots of things like they had to talk for 30 seconds on a given subject. And Alan Johnson and Nick Clegg just rambled and they went over. Farage, every time, he is exactly on the knuckle, 30 seconds. And he said what he had to say pithily and brilliantly. And also he was able to express... You know, often political ideas are difficult to express in a pithy way. He had the the ability to do that. Fantastic communicator, fantastic performer. Where, in my opinion, he's fallen short short. is just on judgments of taste sometimes. And he just goes too far. Can I I just stop you there? You talked about an event during the referendum where people presumably had paid money to come to listen to people discussing. When, When I stood in Clacton... I used to invite people to come along to listen to me talking. Mm -hmm. And um, I I was pleasantly surprised at what a positive response I used to get. Until someone pointed out that in the neighbourhoods where I leafleted for these events, I shouldn't worry about the 2% of local residents who came along. I should worry about the 98% of people who didn't. The sort of people who are going to come along to a debate like that are, are going to be responsive and receptive to those pithy arguments. It's the vast majority okay. of people in the country who don't go to those. And they sure. needed to hear a message that we wouldn't have delivered if the referendum... The, the EU was won run by winning the vote of the undecided. If, if UKIP had run the referendum campaign, we may have come up with some cut-through sound bites, okay. but we would have lost massively because we wouldn't have appealed. You know, the, 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 the but that's, dis- but that's distracting from what I'm saying. My point is, is that his, if he's got errors, it's because he lacks taste and no, he no, just no, goes too Dominic, far. This is really key. The first thing you've got to do in politics is learn how to count. And I think that UKIP's problem and the problem that the leaders of UKIP had is fundamentally they, they didn't know how to count. If you want to win a parliamentary constituency... You have to say, what is it that you can do to get 20,000-plus people to, 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 to vote for you and, and support you? You can, you, can, you can get all the media attention you want. You can get all the camera attention you want. You can be at the centre of as many media storms as you like. But what do you need to do to get 20,000 people in a parliamentary constituency to vote for you? That inability to count, I think, explains why UKIP 
got 12% of the popular vote at the last election, but only managed to win a single parliamentary okay. constituency. Fair enough. Right, last question, then we're going to talk about your book. But all these issues are kind of addressed in your book, particularly the Farage question. Um, Theresa May, now, m- my view of her from her time as Home Secretary is that, it, you know, if politics isn't left and right, but it's got this, this square and you've got left, authoritarian, libertarian and right mm-hmm. on this kind of cross, I should say. You know, Theresa May is to the right, but she's extremely authoritarian. Is that fair enough to call her that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I think you're being overly analytical. You're assuming that she, like you, ponders these great questions. I I think you have to understand that most politicians, of which Theresa May is is a good example, ultimately do what they think is, is the sensible norm. And if you're encased in a home office where your experts and officials are advising you to do things, you, you tend to do them. So I, I think she reflected many of the assumptions, presumptions one might say, of the upper echelons of the, the home office. Now, um, you're quite right. Some of that was fairly illiberal. You know, all the snoopers charter and all that. And, and you know, one thing that, 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 that bothers me um, is um, stopping... Um, stop and search mm. and that was supposed to be a liberal measure but actually this, we've ended up creating a, 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 an approach to policing where the police are not able to go after people who they know to be or suspect to be the bad guys um, I, I, I saw some of the consequences of that in Clacton and they pale into uh, insignificance compared to some of the consequences that we now see in central London um, but you know Again and again and again, I think Theresa May, as Home Secretary, did what the officials around her told okay. her was was the way forward. Um, which is in, why, in, I think in classical literature, they would talk about the artist being the the inspiration, the, the fountain through which divine inspiration would flow, and maybe the politician is the fountain through which the civil service flows. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would argue that one of the reasons why this country has been um, run the way it has been for a generation or more is precisely because many of the people that we send to Parliament are more interested in climbing up the ladder when they get there. They therefore follow civil service advice. They then therefore go to Westminster and and immerse themselves in the group think rather than challenge it. There's there's very little grit in the oyster uh, and this means that the Sir Humphrey element runs the British state and Sir Humphrey is notoriously dozy. The real significance of the referendum is that it has rather rudely uh, awoken the Sir Humphrey element in, in Whitehall, not just changing the nature of our relations with the EU, but potentially shifting um, the relationship between the governed and the, uh, the, the, the governed and the, um, uh, the governing. Um, it, it, we could see in May someone who is um, as radical in what you might call domestic UK politics as, as she's been forced to be by the referendum in, in recalibrating our relations with the EU. But, but we'll know that, I think, in a year or so's time. OK, so you think we're in good hands? I'm, I'm, def- I'm going to be supporting Theresa May um, because I want her to make good on Brexit. Um, from that, I think, will flow... Um, a, a lot of other reforms. Once we're in charge of environment policy, once we're in charge of immigration policy, I think we could do some really exciting, innovative things. Okay. But you know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm 60% signed up to what I think will be in the Tory Party manifesto. There will be 40% with which I disagree. And you know, as soon as you disagree with this kind of party line, the you're an outsider, you're a maverick, you're yeah. This is why there's only so much you can achieve. This is why I couldn't go back to the Conservatives. I'm not fundamentally a, a very good Conservative. I, I, I'm not very good at pretending that I agree 100% with the manifesto, uh, much of which could have been written, frankly, by Tony Blair's special advisors or Gordon yeah. Brown's special advisors or David Cameron's special advisors. O- on so many areas of public policy making, there's something completely interchangeable about the cliques vying to be on the... Uh, uh, sofa in number 10 Downing Street what we need to do is make sure that politics is not just a competition for cliques to sit on the Downing Street sofa, at the moment you know, same sofa, different cliques if we radically change politics it, it, it could be actually a genuine contest for real change what, why did it take a referendum to get them to wake up to a 40 year misjudgement on, on, on Europe policy OK, we're going to come to some of these questions. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about the book. Now, the first third of the book is describing 
describing the EU vote and, and, and what happened in your secret meetings with, with Daniel Hanan that you used to hold at the Tate Gallery where you knew nobody from Parliament would go and see you having, having your secret plotting. Um, so why don't you describe the, 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 the first third? Yeah, the first, first bit about... We're seeing throughout the Western world the rise of what I call the, the, the new radicals. Politics has never been more unpredictable. We see this in Europe, we see it in this country, we see it in the United States. I wanted to give an account as to why I think we're seeing the rise of uh, the new radicals. And I wanted to write it as someone who's been at the forefront of this revolt against politics as, as usual. I not only joined UKIP and won their only parliamentary seat at the last election, I, I helped co-found Vote Leave and, and uh, was very involved in, in, in running the referendum campaign. Often when the commentariat and the established political pundits talk about the new radicals, they're, they're pejorative, they regard it as dirty populism. Mm-hmm. I actually think there's something really quite legitimate about the uh, new radical insurgency. It's a completely legitimate uh, response to the creation of a, a, a political cartel um, and the emergence of a, 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 an oligarchy. And we see this in public policy formation. We see um, a, a groupthink. Um, we see a supranational elite, the sort of people who hang out in Davos every year, patting each other on the back, uh, uh, applauding one another for being so clever and well-connected. Um, these these elites, I would argue, are uh, 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 hideously incompetent. They tank the banks. They fail to understand the consequences of cheap credit. Um, you know, they they uh, again and again and again are blundered on on foreign policy. Um, and yet, at no point do the uh, political elites who govern in most Western states have the self awareness to understand that actually uh, the, the demos out there, um, quite rightly. Um, holds them in, in, in contempt. And, and you know, the new radical movement is a response by the demos to this arrogant, incompetent... Uh, they call themselves the liberal elite. Actually, they shouldn't flatter themselves. They're a profoundly illiberal yes. elite. They're a technocratic, managerialist, arrogant elite who believe that the world can be organised by blueprint. The, you know, the elite actually believes that it can control sea levels and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They can't even control the borders. They're, they're hopeless at managing the basics of statecraft, um, and yet they presume to be able to reshape the world. The demos is, is angry about this, and I wanted to explain in the book that actually if we, if we want to respond to the rise of, of new radicalism, of, of populism, we, we should start by asking what it is about the political and economic oligarchy that, that we need to change. Now, one of the things that Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, big um, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, very successful man, said in an essay, um, was that he didn't believe, he decided early in his life, that political change could not be achieved through politics. The only way to achieve it is through technology. Um, have you read that essay? Do you know? I mean, I, I imagine that's something familiar, you agree I'm, with. I'm familiar with the argument, and there's a lot I agree with. Um, before I wrote Rebel, I wrote a book called uh, The End of Politics and the Birth of the I-Democracy. And I, I, I really do think that the shift in public attitudes towards political elites is ultimately a, a technology-driven phenomenon. As a Eurosceptic, for years, I remember the pundits and the political establishment describing Eurosceptics as, as reactionary, as, as, as backward-looking. I actually think that Euroscepticism and the, the rise of this um, political insurgency, it's, it's not a repudiation of modernity. Modernity makes it possible. Modernity has democratised comments, technology, the, the ability to, to uh, shop around and get what you want when you want it, means that the zeitgeist um, is no longer prepared to put up with a, you know, a, a Hobson's Choice elections every five years. Now, there's a famous Milton Friedman quote which you have on your wall, or had on your wall in your office before you left it at one, one, one minute past midnight this morning. Um, and do you think technology forces what was in that quote to happen? And you're yeah. now going to tell us what that quote says. Well, Friedman's quote, which I had on a poster in my office which is that the, you know the aim of politics should be to make sure that even the wrong people have to do the right thing and I look at many of the ministers in Theresa May's uh, uh, cabinet who are uh, singing uh, the praises of, of Brexit and I think yep the wrong people are even even they are now having to do the right thing um, the you know, a, a lot of people go into politics in order to try to be something to, to hold office 
I, I, I tried to go into politics to make sure that I wrote the script so that whoever the actor was had to deliver the lines that I think needed to be delivered. And technology is 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 shifting things quite quite profoundly. Um, when I first got elected in 2005, on debates about how much taxation we should spend in this country to fund public services. All the pundits said you know, the public uh, wants to spend uh, more through taxation on better public services. And anyone who challenged that was regarded as uh, a right-winger. I noticed the commentariat and the pundits and the politicians have, have shifted their views on that fairly dramatically. All the pundits when I got in um, howled down anyone who mentioned the word immigration as being beyond the pale. I now note that actually the political parties are competing with one another to try to sound credible to control the mass movement of people. Um, on, on issue after issue, the uh, political elites have had to shift their thinking. This wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the internet. The internet, just as we're broadcasting this now, um, the internet allows people to promote ideas and opinions, and it means that it's not just the editors of the Today programme who decide what goes politically. It's also created mob rule. I don't think so. The demos isn't a mob. Or rather, the demos... Doesn't isn't demos mean mob? No, the demos means... The people. I think, but I think I, one of the translations of the word demos is actually mob. Anyway, well, it doesn't perhaps matter. Perhaps if you're an Oxbridge classicist, you might look okay. at it that way. But I think the rest of us regard actually most people as, as like us. Um, you know, um, the, the elites certainly regard the demos as... Um, Un unreasonable um, but perhaps it's it's what what the elite regard as reason that is it, 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 itself in question in my book I, I look at how the liberal elite believes that it and it alone is true to the uh, uh, lessons of the 17th century enlightenment that it alone uh, uh, follows rationalism and reason and empiricism actually I, I, I think the demos ends up again and again having better judgment than the elites. The elites aren't empirical at all. They're, they're what the philosopher David Deutsch called inductivist. They, they believe that they're being scientific in their approach to public policymaking, but what they're really doing is, is shopping around and being selectively gathering facts to, to sustain their prejudices. And I, I give some examples as how this government and the previous government wasted billions of pounds with public policy projects that were um, based on a complete nonsense, and yet again and again ministers claimed it was evidence-based. Um, this this, this anti-rational, um, un unreasoned, uh, illiberal approach in public policymaking wouldn't matter if it was confined to you know, a, a, a few public policy blunders here and there. But so much of, of Western statecraft is now in the hands of people who, who think they're acting empirically, but in fact are, are behaving uh, uh, very irrationally. And the demos has woken up to this. Is technology going to save us then? I think technology could, because technology means that you can do things collectively, but without top-down elites um, doing everything by design. Let me give you a specific example. We're all familiar with the idea that a small elite of people need to run the currency. Central bankers, they've been in charge since 1971, if not before. I would argue that central bankers have got things hideously wrong. They presided over a series of booms and busts. They've uh, created far too much cheap credit, which has had all sorts of hideous consequences. It's undermined Western competitiveness. Um, I, I would argue that you know, it's, it's precisely because central banks are able to manage the currency in the interests of a small elite that, that few Western states have managed to balance the books over the past 30 or 40 years. But suddenly, technology comes along, and it becomes possible to envisage a world in which we have currencies that aren't controlled by central bankers. And, and this could have some pretty profound implications. Um, it, 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 if you look at um, the provision of public services, we're used to the idea that a small elite has to preside over um, the, the, the maintenance of, of public service provision. Then along comes blockchain technology. It's perfectly possible to imagine a world in which, as taxpayers and as citizens who, who use public services, we could have a, a, an open ledger. Um, and, and that would uh, allow us to enjoy our share of education spending uh, for our children. It could allow us to enjoy our share of health spending uh, for our family health plan. It could allow us to enjoy our, our, our share of all sorts of public resources, publicly, collectively made available, but not run and administered on the basis of the whim of civil servants and politicians.
Now, that is all very positive. And, but one of the problems I have with the way the government works is like, if you're a company and you make a product that's rubbish or you take on too much debt or you do something stupid, you go bust. And so Mother Nature has given us a very effective regulator and its name is bankruptcy. The problem I have with government and government institutions is that, as you describe in your book, they can spend a load of money on something really stupid and they don't go bust. They just kind of stumble into the next wastage of public money. So there isn't that same regulation of public spending that there is in, in, in the private world. How do we solve that? Yeah. <coughs> Let's not kid ourselves. Um, companies can go bust and states and countries can go bust too. It, it, it's just that we've created a system of, of debt and currency debasement which means that that bankruptcy is being postponed. postponed. Yeah, but even when states go bust, state institutions survive. Like even after, I don't know, Weimar Germany, you still had... I'm I'm making this up because I don't actually know the... But there there still would have been the Ministry of Agriculture or whatever it was that needed reform. But that managed to survive. In in London, we have the PLA, the, the Port of London Authority, which is the worst type of union ever. And it was like the one union that Thatcher didn't deal with. And now it runs the river, and you look at the river, and it's the greatest economic desert. It should be the most. It should be like Venice, that river, and it's just nothing happens on it. Oh, Venice, you, Venice is no longer like Venice. Sure, that, no, but it should, the point is that it should be like a canal in Venice yeah. with boats yeah. and people doing this yeah. and that, a hive of activity, yeah. and instead nothing is going on. Yeah. And that river is the yeah. core of London. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I talk a little bit about this in in, in the book. Um, you know, um, Venice. That's is why a, I asked. Is a, is, a, is a brilliant example. Of a, a, you know, a piece of very unpromising real estate in the eighth century, it was you know literally a backwater, and yet it becomes this great centre of, of innovation. And it and it, it, it did that because it it, it was independent. It, it was never part of the Holy Roman Empire. It managed to assert its independence. Um, it freed itself not just from external parasites but from internal parasites by dispersing power, and it was interconnected. It, it began life as notionally part of the Byzantine Empire, and it gave. Uh, a, a, a network of, through a sort of Greek-speaking Mediterranean world, and, and Venice took off. But if you look at Venice today, it's basically a museum. Venice gradually uh, morphed from being a, a freewheeling centre of, of capitalism into becoming a museum because a small parasitic elite gradually took it over. Um, uh, uh, an open oligarchy became a closed oligarchy, and, and Venice um, never... It was never able to take advantage of, of some of the innovations that some of her rivals and competitors did. Now, we. By the way, I love the story of Venice in your book. There is one big factor that did for Venice that you you don't mention, which is Vasco da Gama sailing around the Cape of Good Hope. Well, hang on, hang on. No, no, no. You're dealing with symptoms, not causes. Why wasn't it a Venetian who made that journey? Because Vasco da Gama was Portuguese and Portugal was close to the Cape of Good Hope and Venice. No, I, I don't think geographic proximity really explains it. People often say you know, the, the, the reason why Venice was superseded is because, you know... Uh, no, that's not the only reason, but that was like a huge boot in the face of Venice in terms but, of its... Hang on, why wasn't it... Why wasn't it a Chinaman discovering Portugal? Um, you know, why... why you know, to, to say that oh, you know, the, the Portuguese um, made... made uh, voyages of discovery that the Venetians never made. Yeah, but but that, that doesn't explain why did Venice, which was um, you know sending her sons to to China, if you believe everything Marco Polo, right? Why was it that that, that Venice stopped being the centre of innovation? It, it's no use in describing how Venice stagnated and how Venice was overtaken. It, you've got to look at the reasons why. And innovation ultimately stalled in Venice. Not yeah. because of anything the Portuguese did, but because of the, 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 that oligarchy emerging, a closed oligarchy, um, after about 1300, and it slowly stifled Venice. Fair enough. Now, come, let's come back to, the before we got on to Venice, because I was only mentioning Venice because I was having a go at the PLA. Government institutions that can't go bust. How do we, how do we fix that? Well, you've got to do something about the money. Since 1971, our currencies in the West have been fiat money, 100% fiat money. This basically allows governments to live beyond their means. When the Americans had their revolution, they 
used the phrase no taxation without representation and the insistence that the taxpayers vote to approve what governments take off them acted for a couple of hundred years as a very, very powerful and effective constraint upon Western states. Western governments were constrained because they needed the permission of the taxpayer. What happened in 1971 is that governments, because the currency became a fiat currency and because banks could create unrestrained uh, quantities of, of, of credit... It, it, it has basically allowed governments to spend what they want without taxation. Japan is perhaps the most extreme example of this, but you see it in all countries. France, since 1973, hasn't balanced the books. Britain's only managed to balance the books, I think, in six of the past 42 years. The United States has, has created this astronomical level of public debt. If you want to stop governments living beyond their means, you have to address the fact that the bond market allows them to, to spend without permission. Um, they're basically passing on the debt to the next generation. Um, if, if we want to make governments properly accountable to taxpayers again, you have to end this ability to spend without taxation. Money is the zero patient, in other words. Yep. You've been reading Life After the State. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the, but it's all very well saying that, and I agree, but how do we achieve it? Well, like Lenin, I ask in the last section of the book, what is, what is to be done? The key is, is, is bank reform. We mustn't think that since the financial crisis we've solved the bank problem. We've actually just postponed it and, and I would say actually doubled it. Uh, yeah. What we need is next time the bank uh, crisis re-emerges, and it will, I suspect it will be in Japan or Italy, we'll see trouble in the bond markets and things will start to unravel and that, that will have huge consequences. When, when, when the next round of this ongoing uh, bank uh, debt catastrophe unfolds, we need to restrict the ability of banks to create uh, vast amounts of, of credit. Not, not through regulation, not through the sort of muppets that presided over the last bank crisis, stipulating what their uh, debt ratios and reserve ratios should be. We, we, we need a, a way of allowing the customer to do it. We also need, I think, to make sure that people who own banks are liable for the depositors' money. Um, it, it's only really since 1929, uh, uh, 1930, that people who own equity in banks have not had liability for um, depositors' money. Um, Mervyn King, in his book, um, The End of Alchemy, hints that actually we, we need some sort of solution like that. If why do, why did Mervyn King, you know, he had a chance to do the things we're talking about yeah. when he was at the Bank of England. And you see it time and time again. Osborne started doing it when he stood down as Chancellor. Suddenly they come out and they become commentators and they say all these things. Oh, they need to do this. Why don't they do it when they had Isn't a chance? Isn't it extraordinary that if Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, and I actually think a, a pretty decent guy, if, if he thinks that, goodness, the system really is in, in, in trouble. But why didn't he do anything about it when he had the chance? Perhaps because the way we make public policy and promote people to make public policy, anyone who thinks outside the group think never gets the job. Now, I've been to some of these conferences organised by you know, various branches of, of officialdom, and you know, many of the people who go to those sorts of events think and, and act um, according to the group think. It's only once they are no longer playing the game of self-promotion that they start to say what they really think. I, I hope that in the time I've been in, in Parliament I've said what I think um, from think the outset. Have. Part of the problem is that you know, if, if, if you only become Governor of the Bank of England if you marinate yourself in all the clichés um, then, then you know, of course you're going to end up with a Governor of the Bank of England who's... I, 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 I believe the current governor of the Bank of England is pretty useless. And I, I think he's pretty useless because although he may look the part and act the part, he has absolutely no conception of the fact that you know, we're, we're, we're digging ourselves further into an inescapable debt crisis. And, and he seems to regard it as a great success um, that by uh, piling more debt into the economy, we've managed to increase output. He's a found bit. a way to increase debt. That's the success. Um, so bank reform... The, these are the kind of the, 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 the headline chapters of bank reform is key bank reform is absolutely key cleaning up capitalism Capital in other words capitalism today is not proper capitalism damn right it's a form of corporatism um, we need to make sure a, a couple hundred years ago the East India Company 
um, basically was run by a group of managers who ripped off their suppliers, talked to people in India about that, and ripped off their shareholders. And they enriched themselves at the expense of the shareholders. A lot of FTSE 100 companies do exactly the same. Um, we need to make sure the people who own those companies control the people who manage them. So how do we do that? Well, I, I, I put forward a number of proposals in the book to reform corporate governance law, and I think there's quite quite a lot of detail in the book about things that, that need to be done. Okay, I don't disagree with any of those proposals. How do you make a politician actually implement them? Well, I, I, I think, to be fair to Theresa May, she's feeling her way towards the idea of corporate reform. Now, she, she made a hideous U-turn when she suggested the idea of you know, workers' representatives on the boards and you know, quotas for more women. You know, what we need is not a diversity of gender and ethnicity on the boards. We need people with a diversity of outlook, people who can ask the awkward questions. The sort of people who, like you, Dominic, would have, had they been uh, on the board at Enron, who would have asked the questions none of the Muppets sitting around the boardroom table dead. I would have like. taken the money and run. Um, <laughs> Many of them did. <laughs> Let's, uh, and then, who should you vote for to make this happen? You can't really achieve serious reform of the system through the system of political parties that we have at the moment. Because, as I said at the beginning of the interview... Political parties are all built on this fallacy that a single individual, their leader, cult-like, can, can solve everything. And when I joined UKIP as an insurgent party to try to challenge the cartel, I, I came to realise that actually UKIP was just a mini-me version of the big parties. We had our cult-like leader who we promoted as the answer to, to everything. Um, the real world just doesn't work like that. You need to do politics without parties. And, and you're beginning to uh, see how this could be done. Political parties allow small cliques of people to monopolise public policy making. But political parties exist um, to aggregate funds. Crowdpack and technology means that it's possible for people to run for public office without having a big party machine and all the plutocrats that come with it behind them. Um, the democratisation of broadcasting and communication through the internet and email means that people can communicate with the voters in a particular town or constituency on equal terms to the big parties. Uh, I talk about how, how I saw that transformation in my time as an MP. Um, the internet, I think, will allow the rise of, of independence. People who, who can seek public office and win without being um, part of the... You know, Theresa May machine. So this is a new that. trend you're, you're, you're envisaging? I, I think so. The weird thing is, this isn't going to happen in this election, because no. the Brexit election means that... I'm going to spoil my ballot paper. Are you? Yes. Well, don't. Vote, vote to make Brexit happen. It, it's, it's not a done deal. It's not a done deal. We need, we need the, all the nasty corporate vested interests, all the parasitic cartel lobby groups, all those dreadful people who were in favour of Britain joining the euro and remaining in the EU are lining up with vested interests in Brussels to try to derail this. The only way we can stop that, give Theresa May a massive majority to sit down at the table with these people and tell them where to go. Do that. After we've done that, then I think you'll start to see far-reaching political reform. We're going to start to see the rise of new parties, new movements, independence. But the weird thing is this Brexit election... You know, this is this is this is the one time where I think we do need to vote for the oldest established party in in, in, in Western political history, After even in done, the London borough of Lewisham, which is a to Labour, Labour, Labour. But you know, I, I would if I was you, I would vote for Theresa May, and I, I I would do it for no other reason than to make good on the referendum. And you know, think of all the people who want Theresa May to do bad. Now, I, I don't just mean you know um, you know um, Jean Claude Juncker. Yeah, Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair, all the lobbyists. We're, we're filming this in Westminster. Think of all the lobby groups and the lobbyists and the corporate parasites who are absolutely aghast at Brexit and determined to do anything they can to stop it because they've got all that skin in the game in Brussels. Vote, vote, vote against those people. Vote for me. But after we've made good on Brexit, then I think you're going to start to see some really interesting things in politics because, you know... Um, real insurgency um, is, is not going to be delivered by a, a rather patrician Tory party. Um, but, you know, having said that, maybe it's a great credit to the British political system that, you know, our idea of voting for, you know, in, in this age of, of anti-political sentiment yeah. and populism, yeah. um, we're seeing record support for a vicar's daughter from Maidenhead. 
Um, but isn't that a better system to have than you know France, where you've got a choice between a technocratic anarch and a fascist? What is like if Brexit was the kind of great political revolution of our times? I and mean, we almost had a constitutional crisis after Brexit, and it's kind of quite amazing the way it resolved itself in a couple of weeks. But if, if Brexit was that, what is the next great political movement? What is the next great political I, I issue? Brexit is the beginning. Brexit is the beginning of a, a liberal revolution. Now that we're no longer beholden to Brussels, people are going to wake up to the fact that we can decide stuff for ourselves. We could, for example, have a trade policy that was properly free and open. We could have an immigration policy that actually recognised that you know smart, bright people from around the world actually are really good for this country and we could welcome them with open arms but actually be pretty selective as to who we decide to let in and who we don't. You know, it could... I joined Friends of the Earth long before I ever joined a political party, and I care really strongly about the environment. I'm aghast at the way in which so many greenies have ended up in a situation where they're happy having EU minimum standards as maximum standards. Now that we can control our environmental policy, let's do something to make sure that we're not subsidising the distribution of nitrates and, and, and you know, um, the, the desecration of, 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 of moorland um, in return for farming a few sheep. Now, I, I think there's a tremendous uh, possibility for us to, to, to really change public policy for the better. But the real biggie in all of this, I think, the real the, 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 the real game-changing moment um, that, 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 that will come in, in this sort of uh, uh, march towards a more libertarian future is going to come, I think, not in Parliament, but, but in the courts. Surely it's only a matter of time before a parent or a patient challenges officialdom and says, you failed to provide me with special educational needs my child needs or a school place that I want or the health care for my family. Give me the money that you would otherwise spend and let me commission it myself. And once you, once you establish that legal precedent, and I think we're, we're, we're getting close, once you establish that legal precedent that allows people to say, I want to opt out, the state is no longer able to provide me with what I want, I can provide it better for myself. Once you do that, bang, you, you, you move to a world where actually people have the right to have their public service that they control as a member of the public. What's the name of that woman who's challenging Brexit? Gina Bell, is it? Gina Miller. Gina Miller. So uh, we need to find our own Gina Miller. To, <laughs> to be to... fair, I, I've actually got a soft spot for Gina Miller. I've spent quite a lot of time in, 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 on debating platforms arguing against her and quite a lot of time sitting in green rooms with her. I've got a grudging admiration for her. Here she is saying that she has a point of view, she's willing to stand up and be counted. You know, let's not slag her off. I mean, she's I think, hideously wrong and I think, you know, um, she's... she's ending up on the wrong side of public opinion. But, you know, I, I like living in a country where someone can come up and say, hang on, I'm going to try and challenge this in a court. You know, when Gina Miller first took the case to court, a lot of excitable people on my side of the debate started talking about marches on the Supreme Court, and there was even some talk of 100,000 people protesting outside the Supreme Court. I don't want to live in a country where people march against Supreme Courts. I want to live in a country where anyone can come along and have their say, but ultimately we recognise, you talked about a constitutional crisis, ultimately we recognise that, you know, this is a democracy, and once the demos has decided something, we can huff and we can puff and we can argue about it, but we've all ultimately got to accept it. And in return for that, in return for living in a, a country like that, where we, we, we all ultimately recognise that, that you know, the, the, the demos is in charge, we, 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 we try to recognise that there are, not necessarily Gina Miller, but people who voted the same way that Gina Miller did, who, who, who we need to win over. I don't want this country to be 52-48 split in 5, 10, 15 years' time. If we create a sort of liberal Brexit that, that, that works for the majority, I think we can make sure that it's 90-10. You know, Are you a unionist, or would you like to see Britain made up of city-states? Am I a unionist? Um, I'm part Scottish, part Welsh, part English. My, my family history is literally the intermingling of people from all parts of, of the United Kingdom. That's a different issue. But, you know, do I think that people in London know what's best for people living in Wales or, or Scotland or Essex? No, I, I, I don't. I, I think it's possible for us to remain a, a single country 
but we need to disperse power outward and, and downward. I didn't argue that we should leave the European Union because I want to see powers brought from Brussels and left in Westminster. I, I want people, where possible, to be given control over things as individuals. Where that's not possible, give people control of things at, at, a, at a local or a county level. Um, you know, people talk about Scottish devolution. I, I think we should have some devolution to some English counties. And let's not create regional assemblies or, 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 or new entities. You know, we've got very good counties in this country and one of the things I really admire about Ireland is the strong sense of county identity mm. that they have in Ireland. I suspect we used to have that in this country until Ted Heath his other great disaster apart from taking us into the EU was of course to reform local government uh, I, I think actually we could use counties because counties really do command a, 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 an identity and an affection. And they divide naturally? They do. Um, final thing and this is my proposal to you and this is my own theory, the two big zero patients, if we want to change the world, are money and tax. And almost above all, tax is how you shape society. And, you know, if you want to change the world, change the way we're taxed. Yeah. And at the moment, it's, you know, the, the, the worker plays the vast majority of tax, whereas the asset owner goes almost untaxed. And if we want to re-gear things, we need to tax... Yeah maybe land instead of labour you know what do you think of that tax tax this is the zero right. patient this is again you're absolutely right but this is where technology is is going to change things and change things fundamentally Louis XIV's finance minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert once described taxation the art of taxation as the art of extracting as many feathers from a goose with a minimal amount of hissing the bad news for the modern day Louis XIV and Jean-Baptiste Colbert's is that the, uh, the golden goose is about to take flight. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were a government in 17th century France and you wanted to raise taxation, you taxed the source of wealth, which was primarily agriculture. After the Industrial Revolution, if you were a government and you wanted to tax, you taxed manufacturing. And during the 20th century, when Western states wanted to raise money, they, they essentially taxed uh, company payrolls. They, they taxed uh, factories. But a factory is not very mobile. A field full of crops is not very mobile. If you tax the wealth source and you can't really move it that easily, you can tax it quite heavily. But digital changes all of that. It's, it's now intellectual property that is the great source of, of wealth creation. And unlike a factory or a field full of crops, intellectual property is hypermobile. It's as mobile as an, as an email. It's as mobile as a high net worth individual getting on an airplane and moving not just countries but continents. So suddenly the tax base, which governments rely on, becomes more fluid. And I think this means that governments are no longer going to be able to charge the, the rates of taxation that they want to. Already we see in this country a tiny percentage of ultra-rich people I think the top 1% of income tax payers paying something like a quarter of all income tax. Tax them too heavily and that 1% could move to Hong Kong or Singapore or Dubai or New York or heaven forbid Frankfurt if, if they needed to. So what's the answer? I, I think the answer is that governments are going to have to tax people on the basis of, 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 of property um, or, or, and on the basis of, of consumption. I think we'll see a, a property or a land tax um, in this country um, ultimately replacing income tax and we'll see some sort of uh, consumption tax um, rather like a value-added tax but on, on, on retail, at the final point of retail uh, to pay for local government um, and um, far from far from so-called progressive taxation, I, I think we'll get a fair system of taxation where, where people will pay um, proportionately the same amount, but obviously wealthier people, people who consume more and people who have more property will pay a, a, a higher share. Um, but the age of so-called progressive taxation I, I, I think is ultimately coming to an end. The book is called Rebel. The author is Douglas Carswell. It is absolutely terrific. You'll love it. Douglas Carswell, thank you very much. Well, thank you, and I hope you enjoyed the book. And if you've got any thoughts or comments, please tweet me at Douglas Carswell or have a look at my uh, blog site, talkcarswell.com, and let me have your feedback. I'd love to hear.